Thank you for being here. Can you hear me in the back there? Yes, sir. Okay, good. Uh, real appreciate being here. This is uh, something we haven't done before. Um, not a business meeting, no agenda other than for me to share uh, what's on my uh, mind and heart. It's kind of a beginning of um, a dialogue, a dialogue that I think will continue um, uh, on the board of Stewart Church, but also uh, continue in the church um, at large as well. And I... Yeah, well, yeah, because I wanted to write on the board, so I didn't want to be there. I'm only good for one money talk a day, so this, this is not, this is not coming. Um, anyway, so uh, thank you uh, for being here. I do want, uh, like I said this morning, uh, try to honor the time. I know some of you perhaps have interest in uh, things in California. Uh, with the Academy Awards, and I want to honor that. And but um, I, I thought by combine, I did this combined with the Burundi presentation we did, and, and that way for some of you to be able to do both of them at um, at one time. So it is my hope and prayer just to share uh, with you my heart and mind for about 30 minutes or so, and know that we'll be talking more. Um, about this, and then I'm going to give you about five or seven minutes just to turn to your neighbors uh, before you leave, so you can kind of get their pulse on uh, on uh, where they think uh, uh, this may touch home or not touch home, as the case may be. So pray with me. We bless you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe. You have given us life, sustained our life, and brought us to this season of our life. And I'm grateful for the season of life that we are in our church. And I thank you because we look back and see your footprints and see that you have moved us to where we are. And what's not as clear is to see the future. Uh, but for, we know that for all we do not see, that you are there, uh, ever uh, calling us forward, uh, opening doors, opening paths for us as well. For that, we're grateful. And uh, we give you thanks and ask that our hearts and minds might be touched by your Holy Spirit this evening. It is in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Upstairs, the scripture, uh, this is not a sermon, but I, a scripture that I, I thought of that might um, uh, at least kind of summarize one of the things I'm thinking. This is 1 John, the third chapter, verse 2. Dear friends, now we are God's children, and it hasn't yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. There is... Um, um, a story a friend of mine told me several years ago, which I thought was so bizarre at the time that he that he told it, but now seems to almost match my experience. Uh, a friend of his is a pastor in California, and the phone rang one day, and somebody asked about the possibility of getting married um, at their church. And he said, sure, and he explained the process and the counseling and that sort of thing, and the person was like, oh, that, that's good. Uh, uh, and he said, okay, then what date did, did you have in mind? And she said, uh, Sunday the 11th. And he said, oh, Sunday, that's interesting. Okay, what time on the 11th? And she said, 11 a.m. And he said, well, I, I can't do that. I, I'm, I'm uh, occupied at that time. And she said, oh, okay. Well, how about Sunday the 18th at 11 a.m.? And he said, well, no, I'm, I'm occupied at that time. And, and she was getting a little frustrated. She said, all right, all right, we can do Sunday the 25th at 11 a.m. 
And he said, Dell occupied there. And she said, whatever is it that you can be doing every Sunday morning at 11 o'clock at your church? <laughs> that seems so weird. It is not. It is not weird at all. It is the world in which we now live. And uh, it is the world where the church was at once uh, the center and at once uh, held uh, the ground uh, and uh, uh, in the center. And that, uh, that position has been slipping away for years. But the good news is we are not alone. There are many other things that uh, held once uh, perhaps a more center position in our society and have begun to go um, out more toward uh, what we might call the fringe. There is, uh, in uh, Silicon Valley, a futurist. His name is Bob Johansson, and he has uh, what we'd say an acronym uh, that, uh, he, that he thinks describes the world in which we live today. And the acronym is V-U-C-A. Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Um, and if I throw out uh, things like um, uh, terrorist attacks at airports, or Brexit, or driverless cars, there's any number of things that we could throw out that, that give us an indication that the future is uh, not only not like the past, but in many ways, uh, the future seems to be uh, just completely um, this. Um, uh, connected from uh, the past. And, and we're experiencing that and, and living in those kinds of days. And it's certainly true in, uh, in the church. You've probably seen uh, uh, the statistics and the uh, average worship attendance and, and uh, mainline churches continues to, uh, to drop. The estimate is that by the year uh, 2040, the kind of worship tenants we'll see on a Sunday morning here will be very similar to what you see in the United Kingdom on a Sunday morning. And if you've ever experienced that, you kind of know what that uh, looks like. Uh, more recent surveys, this is not to bash anybody, because if it bashes anybody, it bashes me. But the estimate is that right now, uh, the belief is about 4 in 100 millennials will have some sort of relationship with God through Christ um, at, the, at the rate. Uh, that we are going, it is, um, it is a different, it is a different uh, world. And uh, United Methodism, United Methodism sort of hit a peak in church uh, participation, average worship attendance, and uh, 2002, and has, uh, along with other denominations and even non-denominational, uh, been going the other way ever since. An interesting little box in USA Today um, <coughs> about the five largest Protestant congregations in America comparing their worship attendance to the previous year. And there was only one exception, North Point, Andy Stanley's church in, in Georgia. Every other one showed significant decrease. And now um, North Point appears to be joining that uh, party, uh, though they do, of course, many wonderful it is a time of, I think, change and, uh, and difficulty for the church, especially for those of us who love the church the way it is and the way that it was. Uh, one person has said it, I, and I think uh, John Philip Newell, and I, think he, I think he says it accurately, he says, Western Christendom 
which is distinguished from Christianity. Christianity is when we're disciples. Christendom is just sort of a culture where we just kind of, you know, we do church or whatever. It's an acceptable thing. He said, Western Christendom has undergone a seismic collapse in the last decade. And, and that may seem to be overstating the case, but uh, generally a, a look around uh, churches indicates that, that things are changing. And because they're changing, I think it, it, it puts us in a state of um, some confusion. Uh, what do you do? Well, Newell Pop, um, in a wonderful book, The Rebirth of uh, Christianity, says that typically in times of great change like this, there are generally going to be one of three responses. And, and one of the responses is just to deny it. So we kind of like, we can maybe fix on saying on something for a moment. Or I look like on TV there are a lot of people there. Um, Billy Graham still has an evangelistic association. And, and we sort of deny that anything might be up. And that's certainly a road that people can take. Another one is uh, to recognize, yeah, things are different, but what we'll do is if we can just shore up the foundations of what we do now, if we just try harder and do what we've always done and do it better, then things will come back to where they are. No, if that sort of thinking uh, rings the bell, and I won't call out, well, I will call out names. Um, Nine Memphis Church, Walk to Emmaus, Stephen Ministry, all these places of national headquarters, when you talk to them about the changes in your church and what's going on, their response is, we gave you a manual. Do it better. And as you may know, the Methodist manual, as wonderful it is, is a product of the 1950s with GM and GE, days of large organizations. And that was just how we gathered back then, was in large organizations, large groups. But now the Lions Club, Kiwanis, Rotary, Star, Masons, you can start naming it. They're all membership-based organizations are all facing similar kinds of issues. But the, the voices will ring out if we could just do it better. Let's get a new building. Let's get a new program. Let's get a new pastor. Somehow, if we could do these things a little better, it would bring back those days that we used to experience. And um, I, I get that. Um, but the, real, the realization for me is um, I'm not sure that that's really the answer, but that is a possibility. Gil Rendell, a well-known church consultant who's actually done with our church, says that one of the dangers for Christianity is what he calls nostalgia. And that is we want to go back to a time that no longer exists. I remember the first two years here fighting battles over, well, our youth group isn't doing MYF dinners anymore. And they thought the world collapsed. Well, friends, your youth group now is driving cars. And they got other things going. And so the MYF dinner was just not as attractive. And so while well-meaning, the idea, they tell me, if you would just run the youth department like the youth department I grew up in, this thing would be fixed. Well, those days are gone, and they're wonderful. I grew up in MYF. Uh, but that particular day is not uh, returning. And there's a helpful, uh, some of you uh, may have heard I've drawn this distinction. You'll read about it in the Linton booklet if you have a I think to me there's a helpful contrast to be drawn between resuscitation, where you try to bring to life the body that was, and just um, and I think uh, we just march around with Ezekiel 37, 
as if that's the resurrection story. That's not the resurrection story. The resurrection story is in the Gospels. And what was, when the Holy Spirit uh, is involved in resurrection, this uh, completely new thing is, is birth. Jesus didn't come back just the same. Now he's walking through walls. Uh, there, there are new possibilities and there are new births. And so my suggestion is there's a third option. We can deny that anything's going on, and you know that's a great thing about being a large church. We can hide in that for, for a while. Um, we can decide if we could just go back to what we used to do uh, and and do it better and harder. Uh, that will get resuscitated and we'll bring back uh, what was here. Or there's a third possibility, which I would say is resurrection, and we begin to look for what God is doing new in our midst. Phyllis Tickle is a, uh, was, and unfortunately recently passed away, a wonderful observer of, uh, of religious movements and in particular Christian faith. And she wrote a book uh, a few years ago called The Great Emergence. And she had this amazing analogy that she said, every 500 years the church goes through a rummage sale. And if you look at it, you can see first there's this Jewish rummage sale. A lot of things with the destruction of the temple now are carried out. There's no more sacrificing of animals. Now there's sacrifice by prayers um, that are offered in the synagogue. And, and about 500, and we've got uh, some of the great uh, uh, church, early church, not early church, but um, sort of... I, a Catholic in terms of universal church leaders, Gregory the Great, wonderful people, and there's a new movement in Christianity. And then about a thousand, there's this, this new thing that happens. East and West begin to split into two branches of Christianity and go their, their different ways. Then about 500 or so years later, the Protestant Reformation takes place. And she said, if you stand back and look What's going on in the world today is another shaking. And she says each time something died, but something new and stronger was born in its place. And she said, as an observer, and in her position of observing, you may know, she like uh, was editor um, uh, of the religious uh, uh, book section for published from Publisher Weekly. So she was on touch with like everything that was being published in religion. But she said, you stand back and look. And she said, what you see is there are certain forms passing away. Church is having a rummage sale, and there's some things they're clearing out. But there's, all, there's uh, usually something that is new and powerful that gets born in its place. By the way, she wrote a sequel book, which I think was a lot of fun, where she argued that part of the movement that's going to stay will be a return to um, a responsiveness and awareness of the Holy Spirit's presence and guidance and leading. And I don't think she's wrong about that either. So there's, there's, a, there's a sense that we haven't yet seen what we will be, but it, 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 is, it is going to spring forth. And it's the Church of Jesus Christ, so it will be alive, um, and it will, it will be vital, but it may not be what we've already done. I love the um, analogy that uh, John Philip Newell uses, which he says that of, I said, of midwives. And, and, and there's... Um, uh, and he sees like this is a time of God wanting to bring new birth, and we need people alert enough to help bring that uh, into being. So, uh, if we um, want to be on the lookout for resurrection, um, I wanted to suggest a couple things that I think might be helpful for us in um, in this in this uh, next few years. 
The first one, I would say, is a heavy dose of curiosity. When you see something new, rather than decide whether you like it or don't like it, maybe the question would be, what is God doing here? I, I have to admit, I'm, it's, it, I'm hard to warm up to online church services. Yeah, that, that's been hard for me to, uh, to, to, to go to that. But, but before I toss that, um, I, I think it's, it's well for me to ask the question, what is God, uh, what is God doing here? Um, we can begin, I think, to ask that and, and to recognize that uh, we live in this resurrection age, we're going to be faced with a challenge. And some of you may have seen the very famous work by Ronald Heifetz, who's like an amazing human being. Ronald Heifetz uh, teaches in the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, but he's a, like um, a trained classical musician and an MD, who's also uh, working in the School of Duck. And he talks about there, there are some challenges, he said, that just require a technical solution. So you broke a leg, we'll set it. Ah, okay, good. Uh, he said some challenges he calls technical but adaptive, which is to say uh, I show up and I have high blood pressure. Well, there's, there's a technical thing. I can, um, can take, uh, um, uh, what do I take? Lisinopril, thank you. And, uh, but I'm also going to have to lose some weight. And remember to take my medicine. So there's a technical part, but there's some adaptive means I've got to learn some stuff along the way. Does that make sense? Then he said there's a third level of challenge, which he said are purely adaptive, which is that we have to learn a great deal because there's not necessarily a fixed solution. When my mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, that became a purely adaptive situation for our family. We had to change the way we thought, related. We had to make adjustments and dealing with mom and caring for mom and responding for mom and how we think of mom. And it was just all sorts of issues, but there wasn't a pill they could give mom. And that took care of it. Nor was, like, mom living in a particular place taking care of it. Mom was still our mom, and we loved and wanted to be in relationship with her. So we all had a great deal of learning to do, uh, to work with that situation. And I would suggest that in this volatile, uncertain, complex, and uh, and ambiguous world, uh, what the church needs is to uh, be learning. And learning what God is doing, learning where people are, and figuring out how those two things come together. I prefer a world where I can do all the time what I already do best. I will brag on myself. I know how to do a funeral. I know how to do a wedding. I'm not terrible at the hospital. I mean, I can get by. Um, I can generally teach a lesson. But those are skills that work inside this building, but may not yet, for the uninitiated, help them. And so, um, so it's not just technical. And even technical adaptive, but I'm being forced into an adaptive challenge to think, well, how does a person who does not yet know Jesus, has not been initiated in the community, and probably whose uh, first response to Christianity is negative because of what they've seen or heard on 
TV or, well, I'm dating myself, online. Uh, so it becomes an adaptive challenge. Now, I do want to stop and, 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 and say there are a large number of people who are initiated. And there are many people in this room, uh, uh, more than I would have expect, expected. Thank you for being here. We are each in this room beloved by God as well. So the skills that have helped people come to this room and the things that will help encourage and grow their faith need to be pursued. Does that make sense? So as a church, we need to continue to do what we do, only do it better. But we just have to know there'll be a certain segment that's growing ever larger over the time that we're going to have to be more adaptive and figure out ways that we haven't yet figured out. Does that make sense? So it's not like throw out everything we've done. No. Do what we've done, only do it better. Um, and, but we've got to keep an eye out for where God may be moving for those who have not yet been initiated in here. So I think, uh, that's why I think one of the things that's required uh, from me is um, for this situation, this challenge, is what I call curiosity. I ask God every morning now when I get up to give me a spirit of wonder, amazement, and gratitude. Which is, I wonder why they responded like that. I wonder why they don't respond. I wonder why that person posted that. And begin to ask questions about what's going on. I want to be curious about people and about things. I want to be amazed uh, uh, with uh, uh, the wonder of people as, as they are. And then I want to be grateful. And so every day I want to look at But I think what the church is going to have to have is the spirit of curiosity to say, I wonder why people feel that way about the church, or I wonder what their experience is in the situation, and begin to pray and think about that. And then there'll be something else required besides curiosity, which is courage. Because you can already read between the lines, and you're saying, well, if what David is talking about is true, that means that some things will probably change along the line. Some new things might get developed, and you would probably end up being accurate. Um, in a few years, we'll probably see that that has happened. So we will need courage. Um, and I want to say we need two kinds of courage. One is the courage to avoid the quick fix, the technical answer to an adaptive situation. You know, you could have brought me all sorts of recipes, home remedies, and ideas, and names of psychiatrists for my mother. But that's not what was needed. There was no quick fix. That was a journey that we had to take together. Um, and everybody, including Dad, me, my brother, my sisters, we had to learn new ways of being and relating. There was no technical thing. And in the same way, I think oftentimes quick fixes, whether, well, it worked at this church. You know, very many well-meaning people will bring me, and they probably notice the distinct lack of enthusiasm, and I apologize. Uh, not their idea, but they'll bring me an idea of something they saw in another state in another place. And while we could learn from that, I want to be curious enough, uh, when it's brought to me is, I know this would fix it. I know our teenagers will come back if we just show this film. Um, so it, it takes courage uh, to try to, rather than have the quick fix, 
uh, to say, okay, let's be curious about why this situation is the way it is. Let's be curious about perhaps what other people are doing. Let's go in prayer and see what God may be telling us about this. I think it's also has takes courage to avoid the quick fix because, well, I'll be honest, I get embarrassed. You know, I get embarrassed when pews that used to be filled were empty, are emptier. You know, I'd rather they be filled. So, you know, when somebody's got an idea that says, well, you know, if we'll just do X, Y, or Z, then folks will beat down the door. Without ever asking a couple of questions like, well, if they beat down the door, what would we do with them? What are we trying to do here anyway? Is showing up, sitting in that pew, the answer? Uh, there are a lot of questions. Uh, so it's, it's real hard uh, for me not to want to go to a quick fix and to spend the time to try to think and pray about what's going on. Another thing we need courage is, is if we decide um, that we are here, which I believe we're here in part to make disciples for Jesus Christ, and prioritize some things, then that means other things uh, over time may not get uh, the same priority. I don't know what they'd be. That's something we'd have to pray and discuss. But our current recipe, and this is uh, uh, Lyle Schaller, a church consultant from years ago, is the first one that coined this phrase, that what the United Methodist Church is asking uh, is that a smaller and smaller number of older and older people give more and more money to keep them alive. That's not a recipe for the future. And so in some time where those kinds of resources uh, are dwindling, then we know hard decisions will have to be made. The resources that we have, how, which resources uh, will we put at trying to do better what we've done and which ones will we also reserve to try to be curious about what could happen in the world, and that's kind of a hard a hard line. That was very hard to tell parents that I didn't think an NYF dinner was going to cut it anymore. You know, they're just, oh, I grew up with that. Uh, our, our, the favorite one I heard for a long time is, you know, how many women do we have in Bible study here? Hundreds. But you don't have a UMW? I took a lot of heat for that one, too. If you want to be a UMW, please. But that's not where the, re- the resources needed to go to women in Bible studies because they were coming there and that was reaching and teaching them. So these are hard, this takes courage. And so as a church, we'll have to occasionally have courage to say, this is good, but this is better and decide what we're going to do. I think the main piece of courage that's going to happen is this. I believe it's going to be incumbent in our society that every one of us be about our own personal transformation Becoming like Christ. <coughs> um, uh, Jim Harrington was with us in the church uh, several months back, and uh, Jim is not a warm and fuzzy guy. Those of you who've met him, he's the author of Faith Walking. Uh, he doesn't really shirk back from holding the truth, so he's coming to spend time with the staff. We're so happy to have him there for him to tell us that the church is dying all over. But this is what he said, though. He said that I have found that churches that devote themselves to personal transformation in people's lives will still be here. Translation, those who are really about making disciples. And if we're going to make disciples, part of it is we're going to have to go first. We're going to have to take hard looks at our life and see how we're reflecting uh, Jesus in the world because most people are not going to walk through our building to see us reflect Jesus on Sunday morning between the hours of 8.30 and 12. Uh, 
So it's and to make a journey in this volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world, if we're going to try to be with others on the journey, we're going to have to take that journey ourselves. Does that make sense? So part of the courage will be: Am I becoming more loving? Am I becoming more Christ-like? What is happening in my life? You may remember the famous story of the rabbi that set out to change the world and he wasn't successful so he then decided to change his community and he wasn't successful so he went after his family and he wasn't successful and finally he came to the conclusion that perhaps he should work on himself and he said when I worked on myself I found that my family changed and my family changed the community changed and as the community changes perhaps the world will change so we will need courage we'll need courage because the work of transformation is very hard work, but I think it is the single most important work of the church. We talk about partnering with God to help bring heaven to earth by making disciples. The truth of the matter is the work gets done by the disciples. So what is my walk like? Is it more like Christ than it was? So, uh, having said all that, let me just share with you uh, four kind of closing things that I'd like for us to think about as a church. Um, we have a new bishop. I'm very excited about him. His name is Robert Schneezy. He is, um, uh, if you can imagine it, he's more introverted than I am. Uh, but he's also much smarter. But this is what he said. He said, I learned to quit talking about goals years ago. He said, now I talk about commitments that I'm going to make. And the commitments I make then will begin to yield the strategies that I have to reach those commitments. Because as you know, most companies don't even make five-year plans anymore. I mean, we, we can't control change. We can't even keep up with the change that's happening in our world. And so it's a little silly to think we're going to put something on the board and nail it down for the next several years. But we can make some basic commitments. And so the leaders um, of this church on the executive committee have talked about four basic commitments that we want to make in the, uh, in the year ahead. And the first one is keeping first things first, which is discipleship and and highlighting and facilitating a discipleship path. Which is to say, let's say a person is sitting in a pew, they are initiated, how can the work of transformation go on in their life? And so uh, one of the things we've done as pastors is we've identified um, a a basic trend in Judaism and Christianity among spiritual writers, discipleship people, and they basically say that if you track change in a person's life, it seems to go in four phases. The first phase is is what we might say an inquiry phase or a decision phase. Uh, And uh, and so they they decide they want to make some sort of life change. Uh, and so there's, there, there's change in habits, or there's change in practices, and, and so it starts with that sort of phase, phase. And then, typically, and I know this isn't the fun one, most people who get life change know that at some point they end up in a struggling, dark night of the soul, in a suffering and difficult situation. Um, and you're wondering, well, how can you program that in? And part of my response is, you tell me you haven't taken faith walking yet. You want to do six months of suffering, that'd be one way to do it. But there are other ways. Uh, but we see that there, where you really struggle. Who am I? What am I here? What, is, what does this mean? Where am I going? And then uh, you come through this struggling to a, a period of we might call revelation or enlightenment. You get a new experience of the Lord Jesus. A new vision of what God is doing 
in your life. Uh, and then the fourth phase is, then you take that back to the home and community and you live out this new revelation and enlightenment that you have. And uh, if you want to see what this looks like uh, in the Older Testament, we'll go with the famous Exodus narrative. The people are slaves, and then God frees them. So there's a decision. Those who leave, they leave. But they end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Then they get to the promised land. And then now they have to build a nation and become a witness to the world. Uh, now, the hard part about this, well, it's all hard, is then I think the Christian experience is then it's rinse and repeat. Because there'll be another area of your life that Jesus wants to deal with. So you'll begin to make a decision to deal with it. You'll go through a struggle having to deal with that. And then you'll come to some aha moment and, and you're back on the clouds and then you need to get off the clouds down with, down with people leading them forward. So one thing we're working on is by this fall, we'll have classes and experience lined up so you can figure out where you are on this with what Jesus is doing in your life and we can let you know where the next best place for you is. If you're in that period of enlightenment and revelation, what can strengthen that? If you want to take it back to the world, what can strengthen that? If you're uh, you're in a process of deep and difficult change, what will be a part of that? Does that make sense? So anyway, that's that's one of the, uh, the, the things we're going to do. Another thing that we're working on is connection to our community. Uh, we um, we do a wonderful job connecting in all sorts of the world, but we cannot forget the place where God. I say that word in my Burundi shirt, but we cannot forget that God has put us here, a specific place and a specific time. Um, when my kids were um, little, they learned the song, "Who are the people in your neighborhood?" In your neighborhood, do we know? Do we know? Are we connected <coughs> through the schools uh, and through other places? We need to to get back in touch. Uh, this is like, I've been around a long time, as you might know. I this church has such an unbelievable heart to help and connect with people. So this is not going to be hard. It's just going to figure out the best way to do it. And I'm also very excited that I'm, uh, three other very large Methodist churches in town are talking about partnering uh, with us about also picking some block some. This has been done in Dallas, it's been done in Houston, it hasn't been done here, where we like adopt a section of San Antonio, a small section, and we get in deep into that, into that part of the city and see what positive change can be brought to people in need in there. And so I think that, that's very exciting, uh, and I believe that will happen. Another thing uh, that I anticipate, another one of our commitments, and this shall not surprise you at all, we're not real good at communication. At this church, I'm not real good at getting words out for everybody, and I know y'all are saying you can say that again. I, all right, I'm not real good, and and we're not. But we we've engaged a consultant, we have a task force. This year, you will see, I believe, the fruits of that. And it's not just communication within our church, which is so vitally important. But the reality is, the portal for the uninitiated is no longer Sunday morning. Are we taking advantage of other portals? Have we we have the best news of anybody, you know? But we're sitting on it. 
And uh, so that's pop, that. And so I'm very excited about uh, uh, what will happen there. And finally, this will be no surprise because we've been talking about it. Hospitality. Uh, this cuts two ways. Hospitality certainly the initiated and others who find their way onto our campus. Are they feeling welcome? Do they feel like we've given them a place and direction? Uh, do they know where to go? Do they even know the next step on their spiritual journey? Those kinds of things will be important. But also a hospitality to other people who are not like us in this community and in this city. These are times when lines are being drawn that do not need to be drawn. Uh, and we need to be a part of, uh, of loving all people, regardless of where they are on the political or religious uh, spectrum. And to do that, we will have to practice the ancient biblical practice of, of hospitality. And so we will continue uh, to uh, talk about it, both in terms of what we do and welcome wise for people, but also how we can extend a welcome outside this church and our community. And and how we extend the welcome to one another within this community. One of the things is that um, um, this country is divided. That's not news. It's, it's in that way. Um, uh, but the church is the one place, I believe, that people on both sides of the political, uh, theological spectrum, if there's even two sides, there may be multiple sides, can honor and listen and respect one another. And if we cannot do that, we are many things, but we are not a Christian church of Jesus. So you can expect over the next couple of years that we will invest time and energy in how we listen to one another and how we dialogue with people who hold diverse opinions from the ones we have. If, if you're looking for a mono-cultural, uh, uh, mono-position, theological and politically in this church, you're not going to be comfortable. Because if you love Jesus and I love Jesus, we're going to figure out how we get along how we walk together. Because the mission of our church is bigger than any political or social issue. And right now, political and social issues are taking one of our wheels off the track. And we just can't stand for that anymore. We, we, we're way too far behind. We, we don't have time to play games with each other while, uh, while the millennial population sits at 4% uh, relationship with Christ. We, just, we don't have time for that. Uh, so those are the four things uh, then let me, I said I would close, I really will. There are two things I think you can always count on whether you want them or not, no matter uh, what happens with these. And that is, we will always be a place, at least while I'm here, where the important thing is that you know that you were loved unconditionally in Jesus Christ. That the most important thing about you is your identity in Christ. That's very Methodist. John Wesley called it provenient grace. It's very Christian. Uh, it's, it's very biblical to know that you are the beloved. But here's the catch. If you are, close that person across the hall. Um, the second thing you can count on is that I think people, I, this might may be a form of warpedness, but I think people are looking for ancient wisdom in a modern and very complex day. And I believe that in our scriptures, we have answers to questions we don't even know are out there yet. And that and one of the things I said to our pastors the other day is what's happened in our world, a lot of things have happened, but our, tech, our technology is running so far ahead of our character. It's just not even close. It's like one's in a race car and the other's on foot. 
Um, and there, so there is still a place for us because there's a place for values in this rapidly changing world because can you imagine to have the power to do all sorts of damage in the world but not the character to refrain from it as individuals. There is a place for us and so uh, never doubt that we're going to call on the ancient wisdom through the text to do this. Um, when I was in Burundi, um, uh, Matt asked me when I got home, he said, well, what revelation did you get from God or clarification? You always get one when you go. And I'm like, no, I don't really think so, because we didn't have flushing water toilets this year. But, but you know, I did. I did. And what I heard God say to me is, I know that there are certain things that are dying in your midst. And you need to honor that and be present and faithful to the work of grief. But on the other hand, a big part of your job is to find what is beginning to take life and water it and support it. And so I have to tell you, I have more energy coming back here than I've had in years because I'm not worried about protecting things from dying so much as I am looking for the grass that's coming up between the cracks, finding it and watering it. Because I believe in a God that does new things. And I'm privileged to be with you as we do it. Ed Friedman, uh, the great uh, family systems uh, writer, uh, in his book, Failure of Nerve, uh, talks about the fact that so many European countries spend all that time and energy to discover not the new world, but a passage to India or to the East. And so when they discovered the new world, he said it took them decades, if not centuries, <coughs> to realize the wonder of what they had found. I don't think there's a quick fix for us as a church. But I know that in trying to follow Christ and be who we're called to be, I believe that we will find something even greater. New things that God is doing. I just hope that we will have the wisdom to recognize. Um, so thank you for your time this evening. I'd like you to do uh, uh, one thing, and I know those of you who have Oscars need to leave, but those of you who still have uh, a, a few minutes, I'm going to write a... Um, this is an important email address for most every occasion, ljane at ahumc.org. I would like, if you will, and I'll, I'll call time at 10 till, we'll stop. For five minutes, find two or three friendly people around you and, uh, and, sh- and just share, does this resonate, does this not resonate? And whatever comes out in the group, I hope you'll send to Leah so she can let me know how we need to continue the dialogue. Does that make sense? So find two or three friendly people and just say, I like this, this helped, or I don't get this or whatever, and then if someone will email to Leah the results, then I'll know where to go next. Okay? And I will pray for us in five minutes.